All right, two, three, four. This is us going. Fantastic. Hey, gang, welcome to episode 35 of the No Proscenium podcast, your podcast about immersive and interactive entertainment and... Nope, three, two, one. Hey, gang, welcome to episode 35 of the No Proscenium podcast, your podcast about immersive theater and its ilk. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, and we're going to get into it as fast as possible, I promise you. Today on the show, uh, Marika Splint who comes to us from the Netherlands and is in UCLA now doing the professorial thing and teaching a new generation of theater artists. Uh, Marika's great. Uh, she reached out to me uh, before she even got into her job because she found us and we have this conversation in her office about uh, what, what, are, what things are like over there um, because why wouldn't we do that? That makes the most sense to me. So her journey, her experiences, some fascinating sounding shows that I can't stop talking about with people. Really, really, really exciting. But before we do that, as per usual, the news and notes. Um, we published Zay's uh, essay from this week's issue of No Pro New York in the medium collection it's really good one it's about the idea of whether or not you can spoil a immersive theater piece uh, it's it's a real honest question uh zay dives into it it's fantastic it's like a three minute read it takes like no time whatsoever you should check it out um presently you can find it at medium.com slash no dash proscenium uh and if you're on our social media feeds there are links to it there um Coming in on the wire, we've got auditions in Florida for The Republic 2.0. Uh, the Republic is uh, an immersive experience that's spun out of Orlando's Fringe. They're coming back. Uh, our good friend Cindy Marie Jenkins uh, wrote a review of her experiences there uh, and also did it during our call-in show, uh, if you remember. we got to do another one of those. There's more of you now. I think it'll actually work. Uh, we'll figure that one out later. Um, and... Um, Anyway, auditions for a piece. We do that too. Uh, if you are creating an immersive theater piece, uh, an, an open frame piece, a site-specific piece, you're doing site-specific dance, any of that stuff, um, we're we're almost more focused on the creators here. You know that than than necessarily the audience. We just happen to be the audience as well. Uh, let us know. We'll get the word out um, every way in which we can help. That's the point. Uh, also. Uh, Coming in on the wire, uh, this one, Abel, Abel Horwitz, our good friend, uh, who's doing his serial killer speed dating uh, on the 10th here in L.A., uh, he asked me a question, what do I know about borrowed time? Borrowed time is uh, billed as an immersive magic experience. Um, header, uh, let me look this up. I got to look at this. Uh, I'm going to blow his name. Uh, it is Helder, Helder Guimaris. Uh I, I blew his name. Sorry. I've never heard his name. I'm I'm relying on my inability to discern things from text. I just fail. Anyway, Helder uh, is famous for his up-close sleight-of-hand magic. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris uh, uh, produced and directed a piece that went up. He's got uh, like the backing of some of the most skilled magic people. Um, think he's brilliant. And he's billing his new piece which is not cheap, uh, you know, it's it's like in a $90 range uh, thereabouts, uh, as an immersive piece. Why don't we always talk about the money? Because uh, I'm a broke person. Um, anyway, he's doing it here in L.A. It's said to be super intimate. I don't know what makes it immersive, question mark. Uh, I hope one of you goes out and sees it and tells me, because uh, I'm broke this month, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to. I'm just being honest, guys. Just I have to be. All right, let's get this going faster. I've been talking for a long time. Um, oh, speaking of things that I'm going to, uh, I'm at H&G, oh, the Hansel and Gretel piece tonight. Uh, maybe I'll see you there. We also got, uh, this is one that I found, uh, one of the, the readers, one of the listeners, uh, Alyssa, I think, uh, if memory serves, sent to us um, Think Tank Gallery, who uh, produced a lot of Night on Broadway in L.A., uh, coordinated that they've got a piece an installation called break bread that's coming up it's an art one of the artists who did Dismaland. it's going to be a seven and a half thousand square foot cake maze 
alone is going to do one of their pieces in it. Uh, there's going to be a, another piece that hopefully we have the uh, the uh, creator of on the show. It's going to be doing another immersive piece just a couple of days later in it. So uh, the, the Cake Maze is free to go see. The immersive pieces uh, you know, have various price points. Uh, it's all in the LA newsletter. I am incredibly excited about it. I can't wait to see the Cake Maze. And hopefully I don't eat the walls. Uh, in New York, you can go check out something uh, for absolutely nothing. It's a pod play, Her Long Black Hair, uh, in Central Park. Check the New York newsletter for the details there. Um, hey, another thing um, for you guys just came in under the wire. The wire's been active this week. I'm excited. The LA newsletter was like filled with stuff. It was almost too much to put together. Uh, uh, Chris Porter, who is one of the members of the Speakeasy Society, I think he's been on the show. I've had them on a couple of times. I think Chris is, yeah, Chris has been on the show. Yeah, yeah, I remember that one. Um, anyway, his song from uh, their last show, The Hollow, uh, one of his songs, anyway, is just put up on SoundCloud. That link is going out over the Twitter feed today, or you can check out the Speakeasy Society on Facebook, and it is there for you to find as well. Um, that's everything on this side of the break, and now, the show. We just stumble into this thing, so uh, for all intents and purposes, we've started. Uh, sitting across from me in her own office, we're visiting uh, today, is Marika Splint, who is... Uh, What's their title here at UCLA right now? I'm an assistant professor in theater directing in the theater department at UCLA. Excellent. And uh, before Marika came to uh, to UCLA to teach, she like reached out, or like right before, this was like last, late last year, or like late in the summer of last year, like right before you came here, you like reached out because you saw that we were up to no good. Uh, with the no proscenium nonsense and we're like hey let's get together and and talk about immersive theater because you're in a you're in immersive theater and uh, you were coming out of europe and had seen stuff there and done stuff there uh, and that was like a whole different world from anything i've gotten to get exposed to and so we sat down we had a conversation in the cafe and this will be kind of an attempt to recreate that for the podcast audience uh, even though now we've like we were at the Wild Fest and saw shows together and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but so it's a little, a little, a little bit artificial. But um, tell, tell the listening audience, if you would, um, what, uh, what's, what's your background in theater, and we'll kind of get around to your origin story in immersive and participatory stuff. So my background in theater um, is I. Th- did direct a theater uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, I wanted to go to the uh, directing conservatory in Amsterdam, but couldn't go until I was 21. So when I graduated high school, I thought, well, I'll study philosophy until they let me in to the directing conservatory. And by the time I was 21, um, I traveled and met friends who lived in New York. And um, I thought, well, maybe I want to live in New York too and I'll study directing there. So uh, I was very naive and very young and went to this library and browsed through a book to see what directing programs there were. And um, uh, they mentioned Columbia University. um, And they also said like only six people are accepted per year. So I thought, well, that sounds like a challenging <laughs> competitive program. <laughs> so uh, Six is a nice number, I'll go for that. <laughs> so yeah. um, I applied to that program and it was also the only program I applied to. Uh, and uh, I got accepted. And Not too shabby. So I um, also I convinced this was before there were a lot of cuts uh, in funding for the arts in the Netherlands. So I convinced a bunch of foundations to pay for my study abroad. And uh, at 22, I left to New York to study uh, with Anne Bogart for three years oh my goodness. Uh, at Columbia University. And then um, that was uh, amazing. And that's also where I did my first site-specific piece. It was an assignment for all of us. And it was one of the mo- most fun days of presentations. Uh, We had uh, presentations all over uh, Morningside Heights in 
Mexican restaurants uh, on the street um, and I did my piece in the library amongst the, uh, the book stacks. Um, so yeah, that's where, um, that's where I went to school. And when I graduated, I went back to, to the Netherlands and worked there for about seven years before moving to LA. When, when you went back to the Netherlands and started working in theater, how, how much of that wound up getting inflected with the site-specific kind of experiments that you had, you had done at Columbia? Uh, well, I would say almost 100%. I think I directed only one show in a theater after I came back. Jealous. Uh, <laughs> and um, part of it is... Um, is also because I didn't want to wait for theaters to call me or to hire me. So I started to just create my own performance spaces and my own events. Mm. Uh, and one of the first shows that I directed was in a, f a former shipyard in Amsterdam that now is uh, like in the shipyards. They had built these artists uh, the art, these artist studios, so it's like buildings in buildings, and it looks like a Borges, Jose Luis Borges world. So I um, was fascinated by the architecture, and so I did a uh, walking piece through the space inspired by stories uh, of Jose Luis Borges. And um, so it started by I'm not gonna wait until there's a space that wants me, I'm gonna find a space that I find interesting and work there. And then slowly um, I started realizing, like I, I really like the limitations that working sites specifically give you. Mm. Um, and I like treating reality as a potential set or as a potential uh, design that things can happen in. And uh, by doing more and more show sites specifically, I realized that I, it wasn't only because I didn't want to wait for theaters to hire me, but what I'm interested in as an artist is our relationship to place and how that creates identity. Yeah. Um, so also because that's something that's changing so rapidly, like not so long ago, who you were is where you were from or what, you know, what part of land you belong to or what house you belong to or what country you were born in and right now we live in such a mobile world like the way that space shapes our identity is so rapidly changing and it's becoming more and more fluid and um yeah, like what's that thing about i can't remember what exact numbers but i remember a few years ago encountering the idea that for most of human history most people went like no more than like 35 miles from where they were born and it's really only been in the past century-ish that that's changed. There's still probably the vast bulk of humanity who stays relatively uh, stationary or, or within that frame, but what there's got to be at least a billion people who are, pretty, whether by choice or not, mm -hmm. are pretty darn mobile with their lives. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's so much mobilization in the world. So there's there's this idea of of, of migration or adopting a new space and and how identity relates to a very specific place and what happens when you know you have to leave that place. But I'm also interested in how more and more we are spending time in very generic places like airports. Or the internet, even. I think the mm. internet is a place that we spend a lot of time in. <laughs> uh, or, the, you know, this office. This office is not specific. Or, tr yeah, train stations, hotel rooms. Um, and I'm interested in my work in both. Like, both spaces that have a very specific history. Spaces that contain stories. Um, but I also did shows uh, in three adjacent hotel rooms, for example. Mm. And it was like, okay, this is this um space very anonymous uh it's designed to make you feel like you're the only person in here well like thousands of other people have slept here before but all the traces are erased 
and what are different ways to inhabit this space. So the piece explored that and had audience members separated over three different hotel rooms next to each other. Um, and I also recently did a piece in a train station. Um, so it cites, I like to call it site responsive work. Yeah. Um, um, because it's, I mean, it's, it is, you know, it's not in a traditional theater venue, but it's performances that react to places that you can find all around the world and that are um, uh, emerging more and more as we are globalizing. And, um, you know, in sociology, they call it just spaces of flows or non-places, like places that are not meant to belong to someone in particular so that are really just spaces where people pass that yeah. are not don't have they don't have a specific history they're not meant to have a specific history i know in the uh in the retail world specifically in the in the food service world there's there was in the aughts there's a lot of talk about the third space mm-hmm. you know and that was like starbucks was positioned as the third space mm-hmm. it's not home it's not work it's that other space you go to and it, it felt like this weird Madison Avenue way of looking at a thing that you know generations ago was the pub mm-hmm. right so like the, the coffee the the generic coffee house becomes the substitute for the pub yeah in, but the it, pub is like you know the people like in the pub yeah you know who's behind a bar and you know you can leave your tab open and pay next week or uh, you know the other people that are in a bar, but in Starbucks, you're supposed, you know, you also go there to be anonymous almost. Absolutely. Yeah, you want to go where nobody knows your name. It, it, it's funny because when, when thinking about space and spaces that are kind of identical, I instantly flashed on uh, the In N Out Burger chain, which mm-hmm. is like the, the classic chain here in Southern California, which New Yorkers always lust after. Um, and most of the units in that chain, un, unlike Unlike a lot of fast food restaurants which aspire to this, the buildings are almost all identical. If it's a freestanding in and out, it's got the exact same layout. So if I walk into one in Kettleman City, it's gonna be the same as the one in Truckee, it's gonna be the same as the one in Panole. Almost to the point where you get this sense of deja vu. Like I've I've been here before because I walk this many steps and then I turn this corner and there's the bathroom and that more many st- steps and that's where the soda machine is. And I think it'd be like hilarious for someone to like design a piece that could be like dropped in to like you could rehearse it in one in and out and then perform it in any single in and out imaginable. Wouldn't make a bad bit of guerrilla theater uh, on that. That's that's a mm-hmm. that's a tangent, uh, f- folks. You're you're hearing a rehearsal because we are we are in a theater arts building. So should just, I should just, I ask them no, to close no, the no. door? No 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 no. It's fine. It's fine. Like it's just it's the background. It's it's actually it's it's cute. We've never had theater being created during the podcast before, so I'm actually enjoying that. Um, well, your your first experiments were were at Columbia. Um, what I'm always curious about. This is gonna sound terrible about like how trained the audiences are. Like I kind of want to say because like. I remember last year here we had a piece called The Day Shall Declare It and it was interesting to see the the early audiences of that piece were kind of like hip to the idea of what an immersive or a site specific piece was and they were but even then they were a little a little timid about you know where they could go they didn't see the space in quite the same way and then as the run went on they really didn't seem to know what to do. And they mm-hmm. just formed a natural proscenium space. They like all kind of lined up like little ducks in a row. And it was it was maddening because the, the, the movement for the piece was designed to go all around the setup. And they had this kind of wall of mm-hmm. patrons keeping the performers from hitting their marks, for lack of a better term. But is, is in New York, you know, once people have been initiated through sleep no more whatnot, they just kind of like, they know, like, go wherever they want. What's it like in, in the Netherlands? Do, do people have a strong kind of innate sense, not an innate sense, but have the audiences been exposed to a, a lot of this kind of work and so they sort of take to it pretty yeah. easily or is it still nascent there? No, no, there's a lot of that kind of work. I think in the Netherlands where I'm from has a very interesting theater scene, one of the most experimental in the world, I would say, and it's because there was... Um, there was a very 
like purposeful campaign to change the hierarchical uh, establishment uh, of like classic theater in the 70s. There were dramaturgy students looking at like the national theater in Amsterdam and they were seeing the same Shakespeare performed by the same actors and they thought this is not what theater should be. So over the course of a couple of months, so this is with like end of 60s, beginning of 70s, like when a lot was happening um, all over the world, but also um, uh, uh, in the Netherlands, they, they were revolting against that establishment by throwing tomatoes to the actors. So that moment in Dutch theater history is called uh, uh, Oxytomaat, uh, the tomato action. Um, and the result was like they demanded like um, a, a different model in subsidies for theater and that uh, younger um, uh, uh, younger theater companies and also more collaborative theater companies uh, would also be able to get funding so that a different kind of theater landscape could emerge and they succeeded in doing that um, so after um, uh, after that whole reform, uh, a very um, diverse and experimental theater landscape emerged and all it was all like state funded. Now, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, there were big, big, big budget, budget cuts in the arts. So it's not, you know, it's like a very romantic story. We build that and now we are destroying it again as a country and mm. um, which is... Uh, very sad um but so i you know the, the fourth wall came down a long time ago in the netherlands and um there's actually several site-specific theater festivals all over the country and it's a small country yeah and um uh the biggest one is called the uro festival uh where um i was a resident uh, director for a couple of years it happens in June and it's on an island in the north of Holland it's an island I don't know I don't know my American measurements but it's not it's like smaller than Manhattan and a lot of it is nature and you cannot even access uh, but there's like forests there's the ocean there's barns and every year there's a 10-day festival and people who don't even go to regular shows, like they don't go to see theater yeah. um, during the year, they will go to that festival and see the weirdest imaginable productions and absolutely love it. So it's like, it's a very specific, um, it, it's funny that, that, you know, that that is what gets people up and that gets people to move to actually see theater more than traditional theater will so to say oh yeah no i i remember being at a i was at a, a friend had directed a one-man show here and i got in a conversation with someone and they were like well is it is this stuff really bringing in new audiences you know like who, who who's going to this stuff that that doesn't go to traditional theater and it it it, it hit me upside the head a little bit because i wasn't prepared i mean i actually there, there i do have an answer to that now and i had an answer to that then but it was it was such a defensive question being asked by the person because they were part of like the th theater establishment and i mean i wanted to almost snarkily say well me but that wouldn't be entirely true because i'm always going to like fringe shows and like i i can can be drug out to a traditional theater show these times although in, in this day and age if i had to pick and choose like if it's if it, immersive's coming up or a site specific piece and someone's like oh you come see my show it's this weekend only and it's like oh, i got my job is to go check out this other stuff and the the other stuff is what I'd you know rather be checking out, but but I think there's there's something to this idea of of it being an experience that you have and not just something you go watch because we watch things all the time. Like that internet space is with us. It's mm -hmm. the proscenium that's in our pocket mm -hmm. constantly, and it's it's mediated and this you know. I still think back to like the first time I saw a professional play, which was at Berkeley Repertory Theater, which is now like, you know, it was it was the beginning of its big run to become what it is now, which is sort of the major player in the Bay Area at the time. The major player was ACT, and like Berkeley Rep has long since eclipsed ACT as the dominant theater in the Bay. Sorry, anyone who thinks differently. 
Um, I'll just point to American Idiot and then point to ACT and go, huh? Um, and it was a production of Volpone. Um, I can't remember if Tony Tacconi directed it or not. I don't think he did. But uh, this this one performer who had studied with Etienne de Creux, uh, who the guy who trained Marcel Marceau, uh, uh, this guy Jeff Hoyle, he was amazing. He was electric. And it altered my brain chemistry seeing what a performer live in the space could do to electrify an audience. And what's so strange to me is that so much of the theater I see, have seen since then, like, like rarely does it tap into that current. And yet the site responsive stuff, the immersive stuff, because you're you know, trapped in the same space as the performer, it's almost like a cheat code, almost like a hack that automatically puts you there. It's like you can't deny that energy between performer and audience when they're sharing the same space. Yeah, and I think that's also, you know, that in a way theater um, for a couple of decades, it was, um, you know, considered by many people as secondary to film because like yeah. in film you can do something, but I, th I think that right now or what I notice is there's such a hunger for this collectivity in theater, but also for theater that acknowledges that. I think, you know, in the worst case, theater is trying to be film and like when theater is trying to be really fictional cosmos and very separated and acknowledging the presence of the audience, I don't think we're using the medium um, in its optimal way. And I think that the value of theater and um, is that it is a place that you can look at something, but also be part of something at the same time and have um, an experience, an individual experience as part of a collective. And I, th you know, I think that's the big, biggest question of our time. Like, what does collectivity mean at this point? Like, how mm. do we, how do we, cons you know, what are, um, w what is a community or what is a uh, a collective experience how do how do we behave um, as part of something bigger and I think that question it lies inherently in the form of theater and also you know and I think that site-specific and immersive theater is it's almost a place of negotiation for that yeah well it's interesting because one of the hallmarks of the immersive technique is the one-on-one -on -one which people, I mean, there's that whole current of super fans of Sleep No More who like compile the, the ways in which you get the one-on-one. -on -one. But at the same time, the dominant experience in that piece is the collective experience of you're walking down a hallway, you see like a rush of people following a performer and next thing you know, you're caught up in the crowd. I always say it has the, the logic of a schoolyard brawl because mm -hmm. it felt really and half the time you run then you go see a fight. So I mean, it really is just like a schoolyard brawl. But that that tension between I'm an individual, I'm having this unique experience, maybe I'm having an intimate encounter, not that kind of intimate encounter, I hope not, uh, with one of the performers in the space, and then I go back into the, the collective, and then I'm back into having this like social experience. And, like, How does my individual experience inform my group experience? How does the group experience inform my individual experience? And it's it's almost inherent in the form that you have to be playing with that, mm -hmm. and it's it's funny. It's like I was I was at um, I was at a rehearsal for an experimental piece on a couch the other day that I'm not going to talk too much about because it's not it's not out there in the world, and and the there was a there was an element in it that at first wasn't being played with. Oh God, I'm being so vague here. I'm sorry. I'll explain afterwards. Um, but I was sort of struck by the fact that there was this very dominant element to the structure of the piece that wasn't being being uh, identified as a point of tension. And then uh, in time, I saw you know a piece get worked like three times in a row. By the end, I was like, okay, now I have to see what they were going for, so I see why. And, and even towards the end, they started to play you know, with that particular structural piece. And so you, you, you find yourself in situations where the form of what you're doing the, the limitation of the space you're in or, or some big choice you've made defines a tension in the piece you're working. And if you don't play into that, 
the question just gets begged and you start wondering like why aren't you mm-hmm. like I can imagine and, and maybe that's what it is when I go and I see a piece that's done site specific or site responsive and it doesn't start to play with the tension between the audience and the performer mm-hmm. it doesn't start to play with those boundaries of perspective and you just sort of like oh we're in a space and we're just we're looking at people and we're yeah. just here it just feels kind of inert yeah. because the question's being asked just by having people physically there yeah and if you're not in, introducing an answer yeah I think yeah but it's I mean that's how people often start site specifically and I'm like guilty of it as well I've done those shows where you think okay it's like a really interesting play you know you make it like a tiny theater yeah um and um but I agree it's it's not it's not enough because once you invite like you know it's like the whole concept of post-dramatic theater um uh of which immersive and site specific theater is a is a result is that you it's it's like a you acknowledge the audience and you acknowledge that it's a collective space it doesn't and then there's all kinds of participatory like i in holland and some of my work even has no actors anymore and you just design the work for the audience to interact so it's only the audience is the subject of the performance um we haven't seen all that much of that here i mean i've seen some audio based or like a pod play if you will mm-hmm. that like you know gets you instructions and i there was a little one that at the wow fest this year i don't know if you, you yeah. did it yeah yeah um and so that's that's very much kind of that thing but maybe maybe explain that to the audience because i know there's some of the i know there's some people here who haven't seen that kind of stuff well for example there is this um uh this dutch performer uh this dutch director mk idema um she designs games for audience and one of her uh yeah one of her most successful works is called stranger and the way it works is at the top of the show the uh out of the audience they ask six people who want to volunteer as players six people who want to volunteer as a jury like a panel and the rest of the audience is assigned to uh, cheer for one of the players so they you know they um, they get like their player who's representing them and the six players go up and they're audience members and there is a row of like sticks with pictures of faces on them and they're the same height as a human so there's the there's a face but it's just a picture of the face and um, each player has to pick a couple so uh, there's a voice like an intercom voice saying pick someone that you would like to be your roommate pick someone that you know you would date pick someone that would be a member of your family so you accumulate like these pictures that you're gonna play with they are like your 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 cart so to say and then um there's different standoffs between players and it's just all like managed through uh, a voice uh, who gives instructions and Uh, Then two players go up against each other and they have to draw a card and they have to put one of the pictures forward and it gets more and more awkward say like they um, One of the question would be like who would steal your wallet and then you have to pick one of your faces That you think would steal your wallet and the jury and the audience has to um, vote Whose proposal they find most? um uh, how do you say probable so it's a game it's a game about first judgments and then if you lose your players like if you uh, if you if if you if you win the round you get the picture from the other player but then it gets oh, so, your, so your hand gets bigger exactly your hand gets oh, bigger and then uh, sometimes you have to you know you have to play yourself but at the end you have to draw people from the audience and I remember I have, oh whoa! So you have to start picking people. Exactly. I had. Um, I mean, I. I uh, don't know. It wasn't really an honor, but I won the game. Uh, but one of the last questions uh, for me was pick someone from the audience who you think will end up alone. Oh my god. Um, so I had to. Why? Why is it so hard? Like, there's this vein of, of LARPs known as the Nordic LARPs that get played. <laughs> Some of these like horrible psychological, like damaging things. It's like, what is it? 
what is it about the long winters that causes these games? <laughs> but and then and then there is then we hear through the intercom like the previous groups decided that they stopped the game at this point. So it also oh. it's also about your responsibility. It's like wait, why are we play, even playing this? Like as an audience, it's our what's our so I think it's Americans would would lose their shit. They would I know. never it's like, ever. No, you could you you could you would be able to put off something like Although that here. Maybe, maybe we could because like are you familiar with the game Cards Against Humanity? No. Do you know this thing? Okay. Uh, are you familiar with the game Apples to Apples? No. All right. Sorry, so, I didn't have an American childhood. Oh no 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 no. <laughs> These are like Apples to Apples is maybe like ah oh, god. Someone, someone in the group's gonna hate me for this, but like maybe it's like 15 years old. Cards Against Humanity is only about five years old. This is the evil version of Apples to Apples. So here's how the game works. So it sounds similar to this theatrical game. Um, you have uh, there's there's a there's a, a two decks of cards and. Uh, one of which are basically uh, offers. Uh, there would be like a phrase, you know, like um, which is, you know, the 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 kind of like you know the 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 best person to you know make dinner with that mm-hmm. kind of thing mm-hmm. like that. And then you have uh, all these cards, and they can be random. They can be like names of people. They can be things. They can be ideas. Uh, and in apples to apples, it's it's kid friendly, so it'll be some innocuous offer, and then you you lay down a card that's that's also innocuous. Um, that'll that then the person who's judging will flip over all the cards, and be like, oh, I like this one the best. I think this is the best idea that mm-hmm. this matches. And then uh, if that's your card, you go, oh, it's my card, and then you win the point, and it goes on. Cards Against Humanity is the evil version of that. Mm-hmm. So all of the all of the offer cards are absolutely horrible things, uh, and then all of the um, all of the other cards are you know darkly ironic or also terrible. And so you can come up with these constructions that are just like not suitable for public consumption mm-hmm. at all. Uh, and it is a wildly popular game. So maybe I'm wrong, and maybe there's just enough people that we should like import this thing and see how it goes, and just see how far. Particularly because I like the idea, whether it's true or not, because I'm sure it's not necessarily true. Like the whole like, you know, everyone everyone usually stops the game before now. You you didn't have to keep yeah, playing, no, that, right? That, yeah, yeah, no, that was you know that's part of the setup. But I yeah. think it's it's also. Um, it's an interesting way to reflect how how easy we are swallowed by. Okay, these are the rules. We'll go and play with. But it also, you know, with with everything that's going on in in Europe right now, and with the um, you know the refugee crisis, mm-hmm. and um, I think also um, Holland is starting to deal with the fact that it has a, a, a you know a very racist element in its culture and needs to get rid of it like we are not we are not um, uh, as advanced in that conversation as the states is or like we have not acknowledged some parts of our history that we really need to acknowledge well so, we so- haven't we haven't either so don't, don't, <laughs> don't worry about that that comes up all yeah. the time we i mean to the point where we don't have we we barely have the language to deal with the fact that we don't have the language to deal yeah. with the fact right yeah but i think i think it 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 I don't know, this game taps into an underbelly that even if you're left-wing, progressive, open-minded, it taps into something like, whoa, this is yeah. very... And that's what's very strong about it, but it makes you as a group like responsible for it and also for the kind of culture that you create and like how shows how easily... Um, how easy people are seduced to do something while oppressing other people. There's there's a there's a that also reminds me of another game that I saw out of Indiecade last year, which uh, is is meant to be a live action game, but there's also a computer version of it. Um, and the guy who's created it, he's one of the one of the main people in Indiecade, and I think he just took a position teaching uh, game theory up at UC Santa Cruz. Um, I think his first name is Akira. Um, I can't remember his last name right now. Sorry, don't have notes in front of me. I wasn't expecting to think about this. Um, and in that one, it's a game about being uh, a young black man on a street in America, and you get confronted by a cop, and it's like, how do you negotiate that situation? And there, there are versions of the end game where you end up in jail. There are versions of the end game where you wind up dead. And the things you need to do, if memory serves, the things you need to do to avoid either of those two possibilities, um, 
it's a it's a knife's edge of humiliation, mm-hmm. um, and it's designed to be played uh, in, in a small group of people, and so it's very similar. I mean, and, you know, these are these are folks coming out of uh, USC's game design mm-hmm. uh, area, which is like looking at all this stuff and pulling from all these traditions, and it's like the most advanced game design space in the world. Um, so it doesn't surprise me. Uh, to tell yeah. social stuff. But I, I, I do think that immersive theater, sort of responsive theater, um, works with a dramaturgy that's very similar to game design often yeah. because it's you don't have, you know, uh, you don't start with a with a structure of a play or with a dramaturgy of a lineal story. So you have the dramaturgy of an experience and that's what the dramaturgy of gaming is as well. Like you go to a next level rather than to a next chapter in a life or something. So it, um, I think there's a lot of similarities with between this type of theater and, um, and gaming. Well, you get, you get taught a way to do something and then you iterate upon that mm-hmm. as it goes. That's, mm-hmm. Which is the way the best games are. Mm-hmm. Which not not all games are actually that good. Like some of the games you'll, you'll get taught the experience and then they just keep on doing it. You know, the mm-hmm. 30 seconds of fun rule. You know, it's like, let's do the same 30 seconds of fun over and over, which which can be engrossing, but it's mindless the way checking your Facebook every... Mm-hmm. Fi- I haven't checked Facebook in five minutes, guys. What am I going to do? Um, the way that is... Uh, but the games that attract the most love are the ones that either have this like they're either like that where they become obsessive or they they manage to advance mm-hmm. somehow like they iterate on it or I've been I've been going to a lot of escape rooms lately and I've been fascinated to see there's this one uh, just west of the 405 on Santa Monica Boulevard that really managed to tell a story in the space mm-hmm. and it's one of those things where you don't want to even like spoil it like it's the the first room you go into you're like this looks boring and by the end it's done this complete reveal and change it feels like it changes genres halfway through the game um and it's just so surprising and it's it's a story that's being told purely in physical space Mm -hmm. and it's one of the most theatrical things i i experienced last year um in in a bloody escape room of all things but there again did you escape yeah we um i think they fudged it for us because we we were like like about like 10 seconds past when we should have um we got stuck at something for a while but like we were there as as uh like the chief not me i was along for the ride with sort of like la's chief escape room critic mm-hmm. and so they were like oh yeah you know but it was it was also one of those things where like we were like we were at the very we'd solved everything and it was like you gotta do this thing and that's how you you end the room and it was like really like we gotta do that it was it wasn't all that obvious it was maybe like early on in their stages but yeah we we got through we we, we got through it. it we got really held up in the first part of it there was, mm-hmm. there was there was one of those rooms where there's more than one room and in the first room we got we just got stuck we ran um, but just just the the fun thing about that genre is that it's almost all it's all about the design of the space, and so you're you're telling whatever story you can tell, you've got to tell with basically symbols. Um, you have to you you can't expect people to. I mean, the way they've got it set up is they go for tourists. You can't even expect people to know the language. Mm-hmm. So you can't you can't lean into that. It's got to be kind of simple math and symbology and matching and everything. And the fact that they were able to like make these puzzles was was really and make a story out of the puzzles was really incredible. Um, and I think about you know when pieces get a chance to be really designed um, in an immersive or a site responsive piece, like when they have like the money, even the money of like Sleep No More, but like the way. There's so much attention on that set of, and then she fell the way. There's so much attention. There was a there was a piece here in the winter, um, whose name escapes me at the moment because I wasn't, I was not thrilled by the writing, but I was completely thrilled by like the first three or four spaces because mm-hmm. they were really well designed. And then about halfway through, they clearly just ran out of money, and then it was mm-hmm. just like mm, put up some black tarps and like sit some actors in some cubby holes and let's go on from there. And then like the actors were just like reciting, reciting, reciting this like kind of interminable dialogue uh, that was like very, very, very convinced either of its own cleverness or of its own profundity. 
and yet the staging was fantastic and so it was like singularly frustrating when you're like these actors are game these spaces are amazing this directing is totally competent if this had been a silent piece i would have been ecstatic i would have come out of it like just crowing about it but the words oh the words um let me ask you that um because one of the things that tends to dominate here in in the pieces are things that are more movement based is do you tend that to be true or like is is language something that really in your own work and in in the pieces you've seen you know beyond these silly shores do you see people really mixing the site responsive with the language in, in a way that truly truly works um yeah but i think language works like in you know when you you know there's a whole range of it like for example i've seen plays like really set in a forest like in an actual forest and working with like classical plays yeah and then you use um and then the, you know the site becomes a really good natural set for the piece um uh but i've also seen it in like more installation form there is um uh, a, a, a scenographer turned autonomous theater artist who did an installation uh, on things that we are saying goodbye to, like things that we have to let go as a, as an audience. And the, the text was projected in the distance. So you would just read the world words and you would like look through this, um, how do you say this telescope? Oh, or how do you call that? Like, like binoculars. Or yeah, binoculars. Yeah. So you see them projected in the distance and you'd see uh, and it was like focused on on the letters and you would listen to classical music and then read the letters and like people would just walk by and so you, you know like just ideas and thoughts that we were getting um writ like i feel too, like for example i don't know like candies that used to be there but also the idea of um studying without a debt you know it's like just concepts that we had to we have to say goodbye to. So it was like a requiem, but it was it was like fantastic use of language, but it was projected, like it was not spoken. It was like a poem. Yeah. Um, uh, I love that. That sounds amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I, I mean, we have a lot of like great movement theater in Holland. There's, we call it mime, and it's not at all pantomime, but it's like movement-based theater. Yeah. And that's almost like a separate thing from what people are doing in site responsive work. Um, and uh, often, often the directors uh, or the artists, they, they write themselves um, or they, you know, they design the experience. There was one, there was one experience by uh, Judith Hofland and she had two people uh, create a Facebook account like this was also in a public space uh, and they would talk to each other and so you know they she used the whole social media structure and she um, people the two the two audience members would get instructions and you know it's about how you choose to portray yourself and at the end of the experience they would like physically meet so you know you set up this whole social media relationship and then at the end you have these two people meet in a public relationship. So I, so we turned that into a dating game here. On your side, get them to chat with each other, yeah. not looking and raise the yeah. thing up at the end. <laughs> like the audience would be like sitting yeah. high enough to see and like giggle, you know, <laughs> I think I just made a million dollars. Oh, <laughs> but I think I mean, there, nobody pitched that show to ABC. <laughs> it's mine. Damn it. Mine. Sorry. <laughs> But I think that there are there are um, experiments with language, but really to find a new language for this kind of experiment, mm -hmm. more than adapting things or like working with pre-existing texts. It's really yeah. how does how you know how does language for this type of experience work, and um, what you need is so specific often that you you know it's hard to mold something that already exists into it so a lot of people are doing their own are doing their own writing or are partnering with a writer to write for that specific experiment but um 
like the few times I've seen it really work at length, it's it's usually, and it's not entirely true. I mean, the Speakeasy Society does does a lot of stuff based out of um, out of folklore and and legends, but they do write original to each. Like if they're adapting a piece, it'll be all original writing. It won't just be we're adapting, you know, directly. It's like oh, we're just going to stand Hamlet up and we're just going to mm-hmm. pick something. But like you know, it's like oh, we're going to do something with a Christmas Carol. So like we're gonna we're gonna write this out, or we're gonna do something with like all these uh, Washington Irving short stories, and we're gonna like write material specifically. So like there's that end of it, and then there's work like the Day Shall Declare It, which was taking Studs Terkel and Tennessee Williams, and there was on one level there was like one of the short plays really provided the heart of the text, but then there were these other um, these journalist piece journalism pieces that were that in uh, in effect are monologues like mm-hmm. the way Stud does writes them out um and they wove them together in this way and they they did a lot of callbacks and so there was this sort of poetic flow to the language where it wasn't just a straight we're going point a to point b it was like point a point c back to point a now point b and it had this recursion going on um that started to feel more like you were recalling something Mm -hmm. and thus you were fixating on certain phrases over and over again and specifically, they would like if they would they would sometimes move one audience member along and kind of in in a you know not a full one on one, but it's like they'd be with you for like ten seconds, and they would just say a phrase to you, and that phrase would come up later, and it really enhanced this feeling that you were having a memory because it was like oh they they said something to me, and then I hear that line later, and it gets repeated again, and it really starts to kind of this build up this resonance through, because you're 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 you're. It's, it's not linear. Right? Mm-hmm. That's sort of the genius of that show. It was like you know, playing against the linearity of usual forms mm-hmm. because you're not linear when you're in one of these things. No, no, and you can't be. No. But I, yeah, I think a lot of the work, what I'm seeing in the Netherlands, uh, but also in Belgium and Germany, it's that it's, it's moving more and more to... Um, less representational and like more to like really experiences for the audience so you so i don't think the question of like how are the performers saying that te- their text is it doesn't really apply to the yeah. work that i'm seeing because usually they're just no perform there there are no performers um but they don't they're, they're letting it fully be the audience like they're not they're not designing stuff where it's like there's a performer no for example there is this or or the performer is 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 himself. I, I think I told you when we met about his Rimini Protocol piece. It's called uh, Rimini Protocol. They're my heroes. They're from Germany. Um, and uh, they did a show called Cut in a Box. And the way it works, I did it in New York as well here. I traveled for a little bit. As an audience member, you go into a hotel room um, in Los Angeles, or I went in Amsterdam, and the phone rings. And on the other end of the line is... Um, a call center employee uh, from Calcutta. And so Rooney Protocol like literally bought their shifts. Um, That's right. right. You tell me this. So instead of selling pizza or like ordering pizza or selling insurance, they just they're on the European theater shift. And so they have they have um, like they have a script like a script there. You know, the the show is a is a dialogue with them and they have this infrastructure that exists for global communication they thought we're gonna make a show in like with that infrastructure um so you have you have a very personal conversation with someone for about an hour who you would maybe talk to if you think you're ordering a pizza around a corner but it's like all outsourced through through india and with that person who you might you know talk to in a very different context you're having a very personal conversation but the way that i did it is that they can operate certain things in your room. So you're asked, you want some tea and you say, yeah. And then they hidden button and um, the water boiler in your room, like turn switches on, uh, or they can, you know, they've designed some things so that they can manipulate the light in your hotel room. So it's, they have power over the physical space that you're in. And it's a whole, you know, it's like, they ask you questions. You can ask them questions back and there's like, a, you know, they're, they're trained to have a conversation go along a specific structure. So they, even though there's no like set script, they definitely move the piece forward. And 
it becomes a game of, or like a question is like, how, mo- how much do you reveal about yourself? How much are they revealing? Like, and it's, you have to make all these choices as you, as you go. And at the end of the conversation, they Skype in for like, I think five minutes or something. And you get to see, um, you get to see each other's faces and you get to see the person that you talk to. And so you become, so in this kind of experience, you even are responsible for language. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I spoke to um, some of the people who worked on this and they said it's really, you know, it's almost culturally dependent on how long the experience lasts because in some cultures uh, they find people very open and very willing to go there and some per- cultures are just more like close and they're like, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna blabber to a stranger about um my biggest fears or yeah. uh, my the philosophical questions that I'm asking myself. It's funny because like the, there was a piece here, I interviewed them a couple weeks back, um, and, and there's a confession booth that was part of part of one of their, the, it was one piece inside a, a structure that had a, a bunch of different little one-on-ones. And that, that was like incredibly freeing because like for like a minute, like I'm talking to someone and we could actually see each other over a webcam, but I was like, sure let's just let's just go there like oh super intimate detail why not you know like what you know they don't know if i'm making it up or not i wasn't but like that self was sort of like mm-hmm. oh this is a game mm-hmm. and there's something but maybe that's maybe it's very american of me like i can imagine other places where it's like nope 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 not gonna do that i can imagine places here uh, i feel like la new york you're gonna get people who are narcissistic enough to like gladly tell you everything <laughs> yeah. about themselves drop that down in, you know, Wisconsin, it's going to be like, oh, no, not going to do it. Nope, no way. Um, what what are, you, what are you excited about working on here? You're here at UCLA. You're, you've got access to the, the school's resources and the students. And, you know, they didn't, they didn't bring you in for no reason. So what, mm-hmm. what, are, you, what are you angling to do while you're here? Um, well, I, so I work a lot uh, outside of, uh, outside of uh, closed venues, so I work a lot in in public space, and I like to, um, like for example, I did something on a market in Tbilisi in Georgia, the country, and I just used the uh, actions and the uh, repetitions of patterns in the space, and I built something like I built a sound walk around that, so you're guided through sound, but you interact with people that I know will be there because. I've been in that space several times, so it's in really interactive with the space. Um, and um, so I frame reality in a different way. And I usually or up till now have done that through sound. And um, what I'm excited about is to find a way um, to make this experience in public space uh, like with more with a more complex technology and and partner with people who um, I can develop uh, that with so that you can add like location triggered uh, elements to it and work with video and work with photo and um, with augmented reality so add like more layers to that so um, You're definitely in the right town for that. Exactly, yeah. and I think I think you know, like this is where this, that shit is made up. So, oh my god! So um, there, there are people who listen to this podcast <laughs> who make that shit. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so I'm hoping to you know to develop that uh, that genre of um, of side responsive work in public space, and also, you know, for me, the, the work that I make is like, how do we look at our immediate surroundings differently? And um, so far it has been lo-fi and I'm, you know, um, I want to see how, uh, how I can add like more, but, but often it's, you know, it's difficult because I don't speak that technical language. So you have to find the people who are like, who know, um, who understand content and you have to, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, one, one, of the, one of the really great things and one of the things that like I've been wanting to explore is, is with like the, the beacons, which you, um, which any can can interact with any cell phone these days. Like mm-hmm. they're they're uh, low power Bluetooth, and so like there's barely barely any battery in them or whatnot. And you can get them for relatively inexpensive. And they're the exact same thing that when you walk into an Apple store, 
and all of a sudden like the thing pops up on your phone and it's like well hey you're in the Apple store like you know mm-hmm. like uh, you want to get this thing you know or like you can just pay for whatever you're paying for and they first started showing up like on one level they were a little creepy because it's like oh it knows I'm in Target that's great but at the same time it knows I'm in Target and like I've got a shopping list and it's like oh this thing you got one is on sale or like you know grab the coupons or, or, or whatever it's, it's slightly convenient if a little bit NSA stalkery but what's what was interesting to me about them is this idea that you know you could trigger bits of information to the phone or trigger audio cues mm-hmm. like off of a phone and these phones are something that like everybody's mm-hmm. got i work i yeah i work with phones that sound carriers i mean i yeah. have like in in um uh i have i distribute them and i have so there there is no sim card in you know you cannot call with them but um uh i've work with a software developer has developed this app who can uh, sync sound up to uh, 50 cell phones at the same time oh, so nice. th- so it just plays an mp it plays an mp3 on the cell phone but there's this app on the cell phone that makes you able to sync it um, uh, so everyone is like hearing the same thing at the same so I've been working with with that software we also explored beacons I think for our last project but I think that in terms of they weren't like accurate enough yeah. like it's not for the type of work that we're doing they, the technology wasn't it's like too wide of a field exactly because they're designed yeah. Stores. yeah 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 so so it wasn't like we couldn't work with them yet but i'm sure that that it will get there but i think also you know i think la is so interesting when it comes to public space and also relationship to place and the identity of the city and a lot of the themes that I've been working on like resonate so strongly here. Um, and I also, I, I think that something like the success of Hopscotch, for example, um, a couple of months ago, ago shows that there is a, a hunger for that kind of experience um, oh, yeah. of people to, to meet in a different way and to really look at the city like what what do we have here how are we living here together so um i think it's an interesting place to be for this type of theater and there's also a lot of room for it to emerge um and um you know i'm from a country where it rains all year like even in the summer like even these site specific theater festivals in the summer is like sometimes so windy and so cold and i've stood there with gloves and everything and here can basically make work outside all year long so yeah <laughs> that's really exciting yeah we're in the middle of like the worst biggest el nino in a century <laughs> and like it is bright and sunny and i'm just yeah. waiting every time i hear an ad of the, the radio that's like the rain the rains are coming and you need to be prepared and i look up and the sky is spotless blue and i'm just like when are they going to rotate these out and when are we going to start worrying about the rainfall although i heard today that snowpack's better than it's been in five years and mm-hmm. it's only like the beginning and i'm like great you know mm-hmm. it's going to keep up through april but you know we, we could the drop could be over or we may never see another drop of rain here in los angeles because that's just the way it's supposed to be um la blue skies talking about the weather sorry sorry <laughs> new yorkers i know you're digging out of a blizzard right now um that's a weird place to land on, but I feel like we've been at it for an hour and we could probably go for like another hour and a half. So I got to cut it off somewhere. But, um, I, well, is there any, is there any piece of work, um, in this, in this vein that's on the near horizon that, uh, whether that you're making or that you know about that people should pay attention to? Um, well, I'm making things, but not in the States, uh, for now, but, um, uh, what is on the horizon? Um, well, outside the states, what are you? What are yeah, you working on? I mean, there's a few. There's a few globetrotters in this. Group. Yeah, there is a few globetrotters. I mean, I would say like definitely, um, uh, uh, go check out the Uro Festival in June, uh, on the island. Um, the whole. The whole the whole experience of being there is immersive basically everyone is like camping and uh and biking from plays in the water to plays in the woods to plays in barns to um and it's it's a very uh very special festival um and i mean in terms of uh i mean you know i'm also pretty recent here and figuring out the theater 
uh, landscape. But what I'm going to see soon is Nancy's Nancy Keystone's America. It's not site responsive, but um, uh, it's in a cool warehouse. No, no, wait. It wasn't. It's in a Shakespeare Center. But it's about the relationship between America and Poland hmm. and uh, a devised work that she has worked on for a couple of years and is now coming into production. Um, so I'm excited to see that. Um, well, in terms of experience, like I love New Orleans and on February 9th on Mardi Gras, the New Orleans Jazz Band is going to play here at CAP and there's going to be a second line. And I think parades, is, parades are, you know, side responsive work in oh, yeah. public space and it's it's a most simple form of theater so um but there's but there's going to be a second line on ucla's campus well or like around royce hall around yeah hall. they start they start with a crawfish boil and then there's a second line and then oh, there's an goodness. actual show um well, so, that's 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 gonna be something to see. That's yeah. that's an event. That's a happening. That's yeah, a thing. I mean, it's better to go to New Orleans. Like I would well, say, yeah. I was but like, yeah, I, if I could, if I could, I would go to New Orleans to Mardi Gras. Like that's something that I would like to, in terms of events in public space, that's something that I would like to see. Um. Yeah. Well, solid. Yeah, solid. I suspect we'll be doing this again sometime because there'll be there'll be stuff. I'll see you guys after the break. All right. I just want to thank Marika Splint for being on the show today. Um, we don't usually get to record like in a place where theater is being made. So uh, I hope you guys were totally cool with that. That I, I enjoyed the background effect myself while I was there. But you know me. I like getting immersed in things. That was cheesy. Um, what is there to say? Uh, I think I said most everything at the top of the show. Go check out Zay's essay, medium.com slash no-proscenium. Everyone who backs the podcast, thank you so much. You keep this thing running. Uh, you make it all possible. Um, here's the thing. Here's the thing I want everyone to do. If you've made it this far, I know you love this stuff. And you've probably done this for us before. We're approaching some fun milestones in terms of our internal numbers, in terms of how many people are connected to the newsletter. So I want everyone to tell a friend. Tell a friend about the newsletter. You know which friend doesn't know about it or you think they don't know about it yet or someone who could use a little extra spice in their life. Because right now um, in LA, in New York, coming up in Chicago, in San Francisco, on the West Coast, all five, we got five, five newsletters. Wow, there is a sixth coming in like another month. Like Chicago comes up at the end of the month. I'm just going to, I'm excited. I'm excited, guys. Uh, and I want more people to know about it because the more people who know about it, the more people go to shows, the more shows there are, uh, and, and everyone's happy. Everyone's happy. All right, that's enough for now. Uh, I hope to see you guys out there in the world. If you're in LA, if you're checking out H&G, if you're checking out the stuff that's happening at the Break Bread installation, uh, look for me. Um, and we're going to have another show next week. It's already in the can. I'm excited about it. And uh, there's going to be some really cool stuff coming up. Zay's checking out Grand Paradise in New York this weekend. I'm super excited for that. And we should be talking to Third Rail Project. I am so jealous. And by we, I mean Zay. And by Zay, I mean not me. But until that time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>